Welcome to the Red Door Church Sermon Podcast. Red Door Church is a church seeking to transform the city of Pretoria by the power of the gospel. We are distinctly mission-minded, community-cultivating, and city-loving. Please enjoy this week's sermon, and don't forget to follow and continue the conversation by sharing with those around you. God, we thank you this morning for your word. Uh, We particularly pray for all the churches meeting this morning in South Africa at this time, but maybe around the world, as people are gathering around your word, we pray that we would be sanctified by your word, even praying for our neighbors, Lichpent, Ilof is preaching there this morning, that you would be with them, that they would um, hear the word, that you would sanctify them, and that they would live missional lives, and for us as well. We pray, Father, even as we're navigating a difficult time of the year, difficult time South Africa's history right now, Father, as we're reflecting on our past, even as former President F.W. de Klerk passed away, we've got to kind of deal again with some of the issues coming up of our past, but we pray that as Christians, we would deal with this in light of the gospel, not hiding away or shying away from difficult conversations, but ultimately holding on to the hope which is in you. For that we love you, we pray to you, amen. Family, adulting is hard, yes? We, <laughs> you can hear the young professional that just started working like a month ago. It's like for the first time she's got to buy her own cheese. She's like, this is what cheese costs? I know, it's a harsh reality. We've got constant things that we've got to fight through. There's internal struggles that you've got to fight through. There's external pressures of life. We've got communal things as a nation, maybe as a culture, maybe as a church that we've got to face. And you've got personal challenges that you've got to face as well. Maybe within your family, or within your vocation. There's these daily battles that we've got to go through. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that our life is almost like a war. You know, you've got these mini battles that you've got to go through and we don't always win. A lot of the times we lose as well. And this is actually what keeps a lot of people up at night. They wonder, how are we going to win the war kind of in life? How are you going to succeed and move through all these many battles? How do you know whether you're actually making progress, we are actually going forward, or whether life is getting the best of you? Well, interestingly enough, this is something that Christianity really speaks into. You might be sing, uh, sitting here thinking that your enemy or the challenges that you face is your job or the economy your own procrastination. And even though those things are very real, the thing that we all struggle against is not flesh and blood, but something that Paul calls the principalities, the rulers, the powers, the present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil of the heavenly places. And so the Bible often uses warlike language. It says that we are like soldiers in this fight for our faith. Jesus uses political language and calling it the kingdom of God. Even the word gospel is a military term that is used when good news is proclaimed after a battle is won. And so if that is the case, if if our spiritual lives are also battles in a war, then the things that we face at work and in our personal lives are spiritual ones as well, which begs the question, How are we as Christians to navigate these many battles instead of separating them from our Christian lives or from our spiritual lives? How do we know that we are actually making 
progress? How do we know that we're actually winning this war in life? Well, today we've got a bit of a case study to see the glorious advancement of God's kingdom, but more specifically how the church navigates many battles. We'll see some losses and some wins within this text. And what's going to be super interesting for us today is to see the way that they reacted to those battles. So just to bring us up to speed of where we are in the book of Acts, um, we see that this message of Jesus, that he is the Christ, he is the king, through faith and repentance in him, we can have everlasting life and a new relationship with God. It's spreading like a wildfire through the region. It started in Jerusalem, went to the surrounding area of Judea, into Samaria, and now it's even going to the Gentile nations, this message of reconciliation. But in amongst this spread, as this message is continuing outward, we've also seen opposition. There's been opposition from religious leaders. There's been opposition from political leaders. There's even been some opposition within the church itself. It's almost like a boxing match, heavyweights going at it. You see punch and counterpunch by the church and the world, advancement and opposition. And today, it's almost like a, a climactic point in this match, leading to some drastic actions taken. Specifically today, we're going to see this battle between a guy called Herod the king. He is the grandson of Herod the Great that we read about in the Gospels, and he's the cousin or his uncle was Antipas. And so we are, this is this guy that was well-versed with the Jesus movement and his followers. But we're going to see this battle between Herod the king and the church in today's passage. And so that brings us to today's text. We're going to see three battles. And so we're going to break this text down into three different areas to see how the church navigates each battle. Read with me verses 1 to 5. It says that about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on someone who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter as well. This was during the days of the unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison. But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. What's interesting in this first kind of battle, this first opening stanza, we see that King Herod is not so much concerned with the Christian movement and withstanding it, but rather with his own political and ideological goals. He killed the apostle James, the brother of John, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he also proceeded to arrest Peter. And so it was a populist move. What can I do to score brownie points amongst the people? And yet, even though he wasn't intentionally maybe trying to resist the church, that's exactly the direct opposition that was happening right now. And this happens with us as well. People might be attacking you, not because of personal reasons or because they've got something against you personally or something against your faith, yet for their own benefit, it suits them to undermine you in your job or in your social spaces. I do believe that in a country where we maybe don't face direct persecution yet, 
we still have indirect persecution, meaning that we are faced with people's own selfish ideological goals. And that's always going to put us at odds with the world. People are willing to sacrifice you if it means they can get to the top. We've experienced this, haven't we? Even though this isn't direct persecution, I think that it is, the battle is still real. We experience it in our relationships. We experience it at work. And so the question is, how do we navigate this as we come into conflict with the world around us? Back to the text. What we shouldn't gloss over too quickly is what happened with the church and the crisis that they were experiencing in this moment. This was a major blow for the early church. The apostles were the pillars of the church of that stage. And so James, one of the leaders, was murdered. Probably many people came to faith through him. And then the leader of the Jerusalem church, Peter, was captured. Imagine the emotions, the thoughts that must have gone through the church in Jerusalem at that stage. Man of the apostles who performed miracles couldn't escape this. What was going to happen to us? They were killed. They were marginalized. They were excluded from the economy. What was going to be the way forward? And this is a very real problem. And verse 5 kind of just shows us that first reaction that the church had to the serious crisis. So Peter was kept in prison, but, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. It's amazing to see the response that the church had. Their first knee-jerk reaction was to pray to God. And so two things that I want us to kind of glean from this first mini-battle, that it almost seems like that the church lost. Leaders are killed, leaders are captured, yet the church responded. And so the first thing to notice from this is, one, Christian, know that you will have opposition in this world. Know that persecution will come either directly or indirectly. Even today, if you call yourself a Christian, it's not yet, it's, it's probably not the most popular thing, but you're not yet being directly persecuted. Yet, if you start living out your identity as a Christian, it will put you into conflict with the people around you. As long as you keep telling and keep standing up for what you believe in, it's going to put you against the grain. We've heard of many stories like this. We've heard of people, and me personally have heard of friends that have lost their jobs because they refused to keep quiet when the company wanted to get dishonest gain. We have friends in this church that struggle to get tenders because they refuse to give bribes to the people around them. You see, it's not even that they're standing up for Christianity, but the mere fact that they are a Christian and living out their identity as a Christian will make you stand for something that does not sit right with the world, consumed with selfish ambition. So church, don't be surprised if and when you take heat for being who you are, for befriending people who your family don't approve of, for having a particular outlook on what the country is where the country is going, and on race relations, you will take heat for this. You will take heat for being different than the rest of the culture. This is the reality of being a Christian. We will be at odds, and let's put this more bluntly, we will be at war with the world around us. 
But more specifically, we need to recognize who the war is against. This war is a spiritual war. So even though we are faced with real people and real situations, we have to recognize that ultimately Christians are at war with the ruler of this world, Satan. Satan wants everyone and everything to be twisted in a selfish way. He wants people to live for themselves because he knows that's what corrupts and destroys everything that God has made to be good. He knows that that is what selfish desire and ambition does. Yet, the other thing that we've got to learn from this battle, as we are confronted with heat, as we are confronted with battles of this world, we need to see how we should react to those battles. The same way that the Jerusalem church did. They were a praying church. We need to be a praying church. When the church in Jerusalem was in their most dire situation, their first reaction was to pray. Not to go to the courts or to have petitions signed or to organize rallies. And I'm sure those things are good. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't go that route. However, where do we start? Where do we start when we want to change the situation? What is our knee-jerk reaction when facing calamity or trouble or unfairness or unjustness? For them, it was clear as daylight. Their enemy is Satan. And so let's turn to God. Church, I think we need a more spiritual outlook on life. Seeing everything as a spiritual battle because it will help us with perspective to whom we should turn to when things go wrong. With everything in your life, we should make plans, we should make arrangements, but are we starting or are we turning to God in prayer and reliance? And to be honest, Lee, this is something that I struggle with as well. We are so good at compartmentalizing. For the spiritual things, I'll pray. Uh, for material things that I need, I'll make intercession. God, will you please grant me these things? But all the other practical things that I've got to sort out in the, in the week, it's up to me. And my know-how, I don't view every day as a spiritual battle. And so I struggle to believe that God is actually involved in those things. And if I don't believe it, that I struggle to turn to him in prayer and in hope when conflict or difficult circumstances arise. My reaction isn't first to pray, but it's, right, it's rather how can I make a plan? What can I do? And so we need to be a church that pray as we enter our daily lives. We need to be a church that more frequently invites one another to pray for us and for the things that you're facing at your work or at your home or in your relationships. But more than that, we shouldn't just be a community that pray for one another. We should be a community that prays for the church at large, for others, brothers and sisters, not just in the city, in the country, but around the world. Family, there are other brothers and sisters in Christ that are facing direct persecution, that are facing life and death situations. We might be taking heat for living our identities as Christians, but there are places that it is deadly to do what we do and to believe what we believe. Our struggle is real, but maybe we trivialize the struggles of others by not praying for them. Or like me, just forgetting to pray for them. I'm so consumed with my own battles here in my life. 
But I tend to forget that we're actually part of a larger family that should pray for one another, that should intercede for the other when the other one is experiencing direct persecution and suffering. A very real situation that's happening right now is the situation in Afghanistan. Um, The U.S. troops and other allied forces were involved with the war there for 20 years. And they're pulling out, and many of the Christians knowing that the Taliban, the extremist Islamist regime, would take over, yet they decided to stay behind. And many Christian pastors decided to stay behind in Afghanistan, knowing that they would risk their lives and their livelihoods. And on top of that, the UN this week announced that since the withdrawal of Allied troops, all international funding has stopped going to Afghanistan because of the Taliban rule. And as a result, we, and in their words, the country is headed for the worst humanitarian disaster that we have ever seen. Family as a church, as brothers and sisters of those Christians there as well, we need to be a family that's praying for them, that's interceding for release, for victory, for intervention, rather than like me, only being consumed with how am I going to get through my day? and what is laying ahead of me. We don't always pray, one, because we don't always remember, we don't always know, but also because sometimes we're not always convinced that God is practically involved with our daily matters. And so we need to be convinced of that as well. And that kind of takes us to the second scene, the second battlefield, from verses 6 to 18. Read with me. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out, that's Peter, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and the light shone in the cell. cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands and the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought that he was seeing a vision. And when they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city, and it opened for them on its own accord. And they went out along one street, and immediately the angel left them. When Peter came to himself, and he said, Now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many had gathered and were praying. And he knocked on the door. Rhoda came to answer, and recognizing Peter's voice, her joy. She did not open the gate, but ran and reported that Peter was at the gate. They said, no, it's an angel. It's not really Peter. But Peter kept on knocking. Eventually, they came and they opened for him. And Peter's like, okay, guys, I know you're excited. Keep quiet. And they went to another place. And there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And so this is almost a comical scene. Luke is the author of Acts and he's writing here. And he's going into great detail the overkill measures that Herod took to actually safeguard Peter. This one guy had four squads of soldiers. He was put in between two soldiers and chained to them. And another two soldiers were put at the door. Round the clock guard. I don't know who he thought Peter was. Whether Peter looked like an escape artist or something, but he was going to great measures to make sure this guy does not escape. 
And the impossibility of this situation is only met by Peter's lack of involvement in his escape. I don't know if you guys saw this. Peter wasn't planning his escape. The dude was sleeping. He was obviously in a deep REM cycle because he was so still asleep. He didn't know that he was being rescued by the angel. And it's only when he got to the streets, he suddenly snapped out of it. What is being communicated by this weird comical scene where he then went to his friends? They didn't even believe that it was him, even though they were there gathered and praying for them like, ah, it can't be him. It's impossible. All of this to demonstrate the single most powerful point that we need to recognize as soldiers in the army of God. It is God who grants us victory. He and he alone is the one responsible for our safeguard and our safekeeping. In the face of impossible odds, God works miraculously and we are but all half-asleep passengers along for the ride. We somehow have come to the inclusion that, or conclusion that we think that through our effort, through our ingenuity, we are making things work, not realizing that this is the God who's keeping us right now. This is the one in control. If this is the case, why wouldn't we pray to this sovereign God? It's almost at this junction that we leave at a bit of a tension point. Yes, God can do this, but he doesn't always do that. We see that in the first battle. James was killed. Peter was released. How do I make sense of this? I don't know, but I can see that he is in control. I don't know but I see that he still uses everything and everyone for his glory. Even God's enemies are his instruments in his hands. God calls the shots, and he even uses the battles that we seemingly lose for his glory and to sanctify our souls. And so almost returning back to the situation in Afghanistan, I read an article this week um, about the Christian pastors who are living in Afghanistan. And it's overwhelming just to see their faith at work and, and kind of their faith in God's sovereignty in all of them. Some pastors, and they share the stories, have had their 12-year-olds and 14-year-old daughters taken from them. And those daughters are now being forced into Islamic marriages at that young age. And even in that situation, my reaction is one of anger, and then my second reaction is, we need to fight. We need to go do something. We can't let this happen. And I was struck by the thought, well, that was everyone's first reaction. That's what the West tried for 20 years. They were at war for 20 years. And it didn't work. For 20 years, the answer was to fight. And to be honest, I don't know what the answer is. I don't know what governments should do what their responsibilities is in this situation, how they should intervene. But of this, I am convinced that we should pray because God is the one that gives victory in the most impossible situation. My first reaction is to try and take control myself, but what I need is perspective, perspective of who is in control of the situation, who is the sovereign God. I cannot change the situation. I can't even change my own situation. I need a God that is larger than my battles to fight the war. 
And family, this is, this is an example on a grand scale, but because God is so glorious, he doesn't just do it on the big scale, but also in the many battles as well, in the smallest of struggles of everyday life. When a mother needs to find the strength to make it through the day, God provides. When you need to deal with a difficult co-worker that just gets under your skin, God provides. When you need to love family who doesn't want your love, God provides. These are the many battles where we need to believe that God is not only sovereign, he's not only powerful, that he can do something. God is a father who wants to do something in those situations. God wants to grant us victory. He wants to help us. He wants to glorify himself because he is a good father. And so to continually believe this and move forward in the everyday mini battles, we need to have faith that not only are we part of these battles and not only that we're part of this war, but that the war is actually already won. Read with me verses 19 to 25. After Herod searched for him, did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because the country depended on the king's country for food. And on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Verse 24, but the word of God increased and multiplied. It, it almost seems like at first reading the story that this is the battle between the church and, Herod, and, and King Herod. But in an instant, God decided to make an example of him. And it was actually a super anticlimactic moment. It's not like in one of those superhero movies where you've got the good guy and the bad guy battling it out for 20 minutes. God is just like, I've had enough of you and it's done. God will not let anything threaten his glory. God will not allow anything to threaten his glorious advancement of his kingdom. And so the moment that Herod not even spoke the words, but he insinuated that he was equal with God, he was struck down and eaten from the inside by worms. It sounds like something out of an Indiana Jones movie. And verse 24, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Family, Jesus is the king and ruler of this world. We're not actually in a war the war is won. What we're involved with is the enemy's last skirmishes to inflict as much pain as possible, knowing that the end is near for them. The last card that the devil had to play against us was our guilt, that we don't deserve to be God's subjects, that we are not good enough, but that blood guilt has now been taken away by Jesus. Jesus paid the price on the cross, and then what he did is he defeated our last enemy, which is death by his resurrection. We have no enemy left to threaten us. My sin paid for. The enemies of God defeated. Death destroyed, so there's no sting. So even if I die in the battle tomorrow, 
Because the war is won, I will be with God. And so even reflecting on the battles that the church was facing here, even in the midst of it that it seems like the enemy is winning some, God is still victorious. If I live, I live for him so I can pray to him because the war is won. And if I die, I am with him as well. Family, for us, we can face every day and every struggle knowing that there is victory even when it seems like we experience loss. God is so glorious that even in our losses, he's shaping us and using us. And that should change the way that we actually see the world around us and interact with the challenges that we're facing. We are facing many challenges or battles in this country. And, and there might be the constant thoughts, what can we do? Where can we go? Where can we run to, to maybe escape the battles that we're facing in our country? However, we are reminded that because God will advance his kingdom, the thoughts should rather be, how can I be a part of God's glorious advancement? God's will will succeed. And so I want to end us off with just reading. It's not going to be on the board. I forgot, it, I forgot to put it on. But um, I'm going to finish with reading Psalm 2. It's a messianic psalm. But it's actually a wartime psalm. Just describing the finality of Jesus' victory. And so I want to read for us Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessels. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Amen. Father God, we need you and we need perspective. Not for the victory, because you've already granted us for the victory, but rather the eyes and the perspective and the faith and the belief that you are intimately involved with our lives and with our everyday struggles. Help us to rightly identify the enemy, not as the people or the situations that we see in front of us, but the spiritual forces at play. People's selfish ambition and desires, even my own sin. But yet in that, help us to believe that you are sovereign and in control. A king who hears us, a king who wants to grant us victory in those battles. Father, I pray that we would be a praying church reacting to every circumstance around us in prayer and in trusting you. Almost as the disciples pleaded with you, we now plead with you, teach us how to pray, Lord. Learn us how to be dependent on you. 
we confess that we are so dependent on our own wise and our own insights and maybe even on our own capital that we don't need you. Father, those things are gone in an instant. You are the only one that remains and you are the only one that we can trust in and have faith in. And so we are comforted as we look to the cross because we see that not only are you in control, not only are you able to save, but through your love of Jesus on the cross, you want to save us as well. For that we love you and we serve you. Amen.